Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio. Reporting from the basement of the Dairy Civic Center, this is C.M. Alexander with the news. It's Child Mortality Awareness Week here in Dairy. As the city with the highest child mortality rate in Maine, we felt it was our responsibility to help parents ease their children's fears. One of the most common fears and causes of death are monsters in the closet. While it sounds frightening, it's a fairly simple fate to avoid. All you need to do is remove all closets. For the price of a sledgehammer and some tarps, you can ensure their safety. From those monsters, at least. You're listening to Dairy Public Radio. This is Dairy Public Radio. Welcome back to Dairy Public Radio, a bi-weekly Stephen King book club podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Joshua Kahn, alongside CM Alexander. Hello, everyone. And joining us via Zoom, an award-winning horror filmmaker who made his mark with the zombie web series 813. In 2013, he adapted The Boogeyman through the Stephen King Dollar Baby Project, which has gone on to play festivals around the world. Please welcome to the show, Mondo Franco. Mondo, welcome. Hey, what's up? <laughs> High energy. I am into it. I just said a line of coke right before we started. <laughs> Getting I'm really just- into the Stephen King spirit. Yeah. <laughs> no, man. I'm just like I'm a, just an enthusiast enthusiast for like podcasts and talking horror and King and whatnot. So I'm just excited that you wanted to talk. Like these things usually are bothered. Like you know the normies are kind of weirded out by me talking about this stuff. So when people want to talk, I'm like, you want to talk to me about <laughs> this? So I get excited. Yeah. Well, th- that was the great thing about the, we all met, we met you and some of the other interviews we've done through the Stephen King Rules Dollar Baby Film Festival. Mm-hmm. And it was just such a cool thing to meet so many people at once. And the fact that they took the time to do little interviews with everybody after theirs like, it's, I don't know, it just made every everything feel so connected. And that's, you know, why we're excited to talk to so many of, of you filmmakers. Yeah, I didn't get to see everything, but I was pretty thrilled at the festival uh, seeing all those dollar babies. Because no one, I don't think there's an official answer of how many there actually are. Oh, I, don't I, yeah. I haven't you know heard. I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I've, I've talked to Anthony Northrup like a thousand times. Mm-hmm. And he wrote the book on the Dollar Babies, but I don't think he even knows. I think the only person that knows how many Dollar Babies there are is Stephen King himself. And yeah, he's probably the only one that knows the exact number. And I'm sure there are hundreds of them. And to have access to that whole catalog, I would love to just watch all of them. Yeah, that would be amazing. <laughs> yeah. All right, uh, Mondo, we're going to get in depth about your filmmaking and your Dollar Baby. But first, CM holds the keys to the rest of this interview. So you have to impress her to move on. Josh makes it sound so dramatic. It's not really that big a deal. Mm. If if you don't answer the questions the way I like, we'll just end the interview early. We won't ask you the other 14 questions. Oh. And if, if you have good answers, though, we'll keep you on a little bit longer. Well, I mean, we are on Zoom. So if I start removing articles of clothing, that might make you change your mind. I don't know. <laughs> So it might be like, it might be like, no, she might just like, stop, stop undressing. (laughs) I'll ask the questions. Please put it back on. I'll ask. Yeah. I'll try to get you to take it all off. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I once uh, told a girl I was bringing sexy back and she said, leave it where it was. It was fine. Oh, Oh, my God. 
It's brutal. <laughs> brutal <laughs> burn. I love it. It's sexy is always welcome at Dairy Public. Exactly. Radio. <laughs> hey, hey, I, I got I got married to a really awesome geek girl, so I'm very happy. So her loss. <laughs> <laughs> All right. First, very important question. Yeah. What was your introduction to Stephen King's work? I was just thinking about this, actually. I was about seven or eight years old, and I was at my grandmother's house, and she rented Misery. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing posters for it and like maybe part of a trailer or something. They were just called previews back in my day. But, <laughs> and I just remember thinking it was just like wicked insane. And to this day, that's my favorite Stephen King movie. But I think that was kind of how the start of warping my little mind of the world of King. And then seeing the, uh, at some point on TV and, you know, like, uh, what is it? Uh, syndication. How they just kept replaying the, the it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Miniseries, yeah, like that used to play on TV a lot when I was growing up. It was just on syndication, like on Sunday. So I just started basically the nutshell version is I started through movies and TV and then started as I got older, like getting into the books. Mm-hmm. I can't recall what the first book was, but I can, I, but I've definitely seen more movies and shows and adaptations than I have read books. Have you read Misery? I haven't read Misery and I need to. Yeah. I've never done an audiobook, but I keep hearing how awesome. Michael C. Hall reading Pet Cemetery is. Oh yeah, yeah, it is amazing. Yeah, I, that might be my first audiobook. That well, your second should be Misery because that's a really great read too. Yeah, the the actors do a great job. The the savagery in the book is even greater than the movie. Yes, mm. the, <laughs> mo- the movie is pretty lighthearted by comparison. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's a romantic comedy. Yeah. <laughs> Well, because you misery was your first experience, you've already passed. You, so I'll just ask this next question, you know, to keep things kind of kind of rolling. Mm-hmm. Do you have what we call a Stephen King moment on our podcast, which is usually something creepy in Stephen King's work that disturbed us for sometimes no reason at all, and sometimes for a very normal reason? Do you have a Stephen King moment from any of his books or movies that has stuck with you? Yes. All right. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you just said That's, that with such a you, stone face. You had earned all that goodwill she, with misery. He, well, you you told him he passed. It took oh, away all of his, all the tension that's he had. My fault. Uh, no, I'm, I'm happy. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm happy to tell you. To this day, it creeps me the fuck out. Um, I was a little kid, and on TV, someone was watching Salem's Lot, and there's that moment. And I don't remember his name. There's that little. That little demonic fucker that's like floating in the fog in front of our window, scratching. And it was, oh, dude, I could not sleep next to a window. Oh, my God. Like, I was so fucking terrified to see a window at night. I was like, that little boy's going to come float to me and creep me out. I'm going to open the window. He's going to come in and kill me. So, yeah, that moment stuck with me hardcore. And to this day, it still freaks me out. It is super creepy. It is very yeah. the first yeah. time I ever watched it, we when we cover books on the show, mm-hmm. we then will also watch it and we get together, the three of us watch it, and most of the mm-hmm. time it's my first time seeing it. So when I watched Salem's Lot, it was the first time. And that scene it just it's so horrifying. They did that scene is iconic. It's so good. Yeah, there is a lot of nightmare fuel in that movie. That's <laughs> You know, like there's some shit in there that still works, I think. And I hear they're remaking it or they're doing something. They're doing a prequel, Chapel Wait. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah, Adrian Brody is in it. No, no, no. no. James James Wan's producing 
something. Oh, wow. I did not know that. I'm pretty positive. Um, he's supposed to be producing like a remake or something. Nice. Maybe they'll not have Barlow with stupid teeth. <laughs> <laughs> that that part wasn't scary. Yeah. It's iconic for a different reason. Yes. My wife always talks about how Jeffrey Lewis freaks her out when he's like sitting in the rocking chair in the dark and his mm. eyes are kind of glowing. Yeah. That shit's <laughs> yeah, super she scary. That creeped her out. You know, not so much a little kid, but just something about just a dude kicking yeah. back in the dark in a rocking chair is unsettling. Yeah. I was like, yeah, I'm like, I guess. Yeah. I guess <laughs> shouldn't be shitting in dark rooms and rocking chairs. It's weird. <laughs> so we, I mean, it's only been a few minutes and we've already covered mm. a few pretty solid, awesome adaptations. Would you rank mm. either of those among what you consider, you know, the top or best or just your favorite King adaptation? Or do you have another one you prefer? Okay. So misery is my favorite Stephen King movie, but I don't think it's his best adaptation. I mean, I really got to put. I mean, I'm a huge Frank Darabont fan, so I really put the the Mist yeah. up there. <laughs> I fucking love the Mist, and I, I really love Shawshank. Shawshank is one of those movies where if it's if I'm flipping the channels, and there are days I don't know if you have cable, but or have AMC over there, but there are days where they'll play on the AMC channel. They'll just play Shawshank over and over again. Like it'll end, <laughs> it'll start again. <laughs> That's awesome. And I I, I have been channel flipping and i've landed I'm like oh shit shawshank's on i will stop what i'm doing i'll watch <laughs> you know and then it ends i'm like i need to start from the beginning and get to where i started and then i can turn it off <laughs> right you're completionist maybe then maybe you know but no um yeah i think shawshank and the mist are above the best what do you think about sure. the ending what's your stance on the ending of the mist oh uh, I just remember being so blown away. I saw it in theaters like yeah. opening weekend. I just remember. Like, there seems to be a lot I mean, of like, there's either love it or hate it. There's very little in between we've come to find. I mean, no, I mean, I love it because in the sense, I mean, I don't love it as, you know, I'm a, I'm a dad. I have a four year old son. So I love it as in sense of as filmmaking is fucking amazing. But like as a father, I'm like, that's awful. Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, but yeah, I'm going to go with Love It. And and the reason, something that makes me really feel that way is King said himself, he's like, I didn't know how to end it. And if I had known, that's what I would have done. <laughs> Which is so, just a rock solid endorsement. Hard to argue with a yeah, King approved so ending. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I dig it. Nice. Uh, I really, I love the miss. I love the ending. Uh, everything about that movie, I love. There's a bonus feature on it where you can watch the movie in black and white and it makes it that much better. Oh, yep. I have yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't it's, it awesome? It's so Have you good. ever seen it in black and white? Yes. And it helps with some of the special effects CGI, and the CGI yes. that didn't go <laughs> yes. very well. No. It makes it, it does, almost like, tolerable. <laughs> yeah. Like the CGI isn't that good in the movie. It's kind of the weakest thing about the it film. It is. Yeah. But in black and white, it looks solid. There's mm-hmm. something about taking the color scheme out that makes it better, you know? Yeah. Well, it's great that it works. Like so you, oh, yeah. you can't do that with some movies. Mm-hmm. The fact that it still works in black and white just yeah. makes it even better. More fun than <laughs> what the best adaptations are. What are your least favorite adaptations? It's probably, I mean, I haven't seen it, but I had zero interest in it, which probably makes it the winner, which is probably Cell. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, because, oh. like, it's just like. I saw, I like, I remember reading about, I never read the book, but I read about the book. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh, that'd be cool. And I remember Eli Roth was attached at one point and then he didn't do it. And then ultimately got made. I'm like, oh, cool. It's got a, an honorable mention. Favorite adaptation is Fortune Awake. I'm like, oh God, it's got John Cusack and Samuel Jackson. That's kind of cool. And then I saw the trailer. I'm like, oh, that's just shit. <laughs> <laughs> we actually just finished covering it. 
I hate to be mean, but it's just like, it's just not like, it just didn't look good. And I've heard it. I've heard, I've never met anyone that liked it. So if there's someone out there that likes it, good for you. But I've just seen for me, I saw it. I saw the trailer. I'm like, that looks terrible. We will report back to you because we, for our podcast episodes, we just finished reading the book. So now we're doing mm-hmm. the movie. So we're watching for the first time, Cell Tuesday. Yeah. How's, how's the book? It is. <laughs> It oh, is. It is. Told me nothing, but gave me everything. Uh, so one of the things that we posited, which made it way interesting, is that the we think that the first half of it is a comedy. Mm. It's a really mm-hmm. dark comedy, and it gets you really into it. There's a lot of really cool shit in it. When reading Stephen King, if you really enjoy all of the Kingisms and all of his tropes. This book is interesting because it very much walks right up to some of those classic King things and then pulls mm. back. And it did it in such a way that I was questioning. I was like, this doesn't feel quite like a Stephen King book. And I, I kind of landed on it feeling more like when he was writing under the Bachman name. And that made mm. me enjoy it a little better because then I could accept it for being a little bit different, not what I was coming to expect with him and a lot bleaker for sure. <laughs> if you mm. like apocalypse stuff, you should give it a shot. Because okay. apocalypse stuff is kind of my jam. So I think that's what had gave me a leg up on really being into it. Okay. Of the, what about the of the ones you've seen, what would you rank as as your least favorite? Or maybe maybe not least favorite, but Misses the Mark. Yeah. The most, you, you felt like, man, this was a good opportunity and they wasted it. I mean, I didn't think much of a good marriage. See, uh, I have not heard anybody who really cared for that. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, he wrote it like he adapted it himself. So that should have been like a leg up because I mean, he wrote pet cemetery and that's fucking great. Yeah. But yeah, just something about that one just didn't really do it for me. That felt like it just yeah. felt like something. Yeah. It felt like something was missing the entire time. And I yeah, didn't know what I it was. I was actually, I haven't read that one, but I did hear people talking about it. And apparently the book is just so, it's kind of unadaptable in some ways. Like oh. some people said Gerald's game was unadaptable, but like there's this feeling and this exploration of character that can only be done in a book and can't really translate well into film. Then they're saying that was the biggest problem with that one. Yeah. It just didn't translate well. The story's great, but the film itself wasn't. But yeah, that's, that's kind of where I'm at with that one. Fair. I haven't seen that one, but I did. I really enjoyed Gerald's game. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I love Mike Flanagan, man. I, I yeah. fucking love Dr. He's, Sleep. Oh, Dr. Sleep was such a good movie. <laughs> yeah. And that's hard, man, because he's got to honor both the movie and the book. The yeah. Shining. Yeah. You know? I thought he so nailed that, it. Yeah, he definitely did. No easy task. And it's a bummer that movie didn't do well. I mean, it wasn't like unsuccessful. It just didn't make as much money as they were hoping. Mm-hmm. I think that's going to be one of those films that is going to really prosper in its second life as a home release. Yeah. Especially with the director's cut and everything. Yeah. Kind of like the thing, you know, like I just didn't yeah. do well. Yeah. Years, but once it went to VHS, it's like, it's amazing. I don't want to sound ultra dramatic, but that is like the greatest tragedy ever. <laughs> <laughs> People are like, this movie sucks about the thing. Yeah. It just makes my heart hurt. <laughs> Well, with all of the challenges and uh, and the high risk of making a Stephen King adaptation, what was it about Stephen King that inspired you to take on the challenge of making a Dollar Baby? 
I'd made uh, a bunch of stuff and I felt like I was going in a direction where I'm like, I need to do something different. I need to step it up. And I kept hearing secondhand about the Frank Darabont story and how the dollar baby thing was still kind of happening. I don't remember specifically where I heard it, but I just kept hearing about it. I'm like, you know what? That might be a good next step. I mean, how many people could say they made a Stephen King movie? Right. You know? So it just makes me sound like I'm waxing my own car, but you know, it's <laughs> like, I mean, I mean uh, that's, amazing so yeah i just went for it and it, it was it was definitely terrifying because it's like you know you're given the blueprints of something that is pretty amazing but you know it's you could still easily fuck it up so it was just kind of <laughs> like no pressure right you know? i mean i didn't know how big the world was until i made the movie and then it was mm-hmm. started to festivals and i was learning about the dollar baby family and all the people involved in this really cool exclusive club i was like i finally get to sit at the cool kids table at lunch you know (laughs) like i never got to before and now i finally get to so pretty exciting but i would say like the the pressure came from within more than anything else and it's also like if you show people to your friends like hey we need a stephen king movie like well there's expectations now yeah Yeah. so it's like oh fuck i better not screw this up (laughs) What did it feel like becoming a member of that Dollar Baby family as you started finding out more people who were doing these and, and getting into that community? Like I said, it really felt like being you know, invited to sit at the cool kids table at lunch, you know, in middle school. Because it's just like, you know, there are so many, there's only a, a really small collective of people that have been able to do it. I mean, yeah, granted, there are a lot of adaptations, probably. No, again, no one knows that clear number, but there are just... Um, it's something that very few filmmakers have gotten to do, especially, you know, young up and coming independent filmmakers. You know, there's a handful of them that are like even smaller handful that actually are working professionally. So it's just kind of cool just to be welcomed in and, and people support one another and get interviewed and share advice and just, you know, push each other up. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's pretty cool. It's a pretty cool club to be in. You adapted the short story, The Boogeyman, through the Dollar Baby mm-hmm. Project. For anyone who hasn't read it, can you give us a quick summary of what The Boogeyman's about? Sure. A guy named uh, Lester, Lester Billings, is accused of supposedly murdering his three infant children years apart, a couple years in between. They're basically chalked up to being accidental deaths. Years after, he's just ridden with guilt because he knows he possibly could have prevented it. So he goes to a psychologist to kind of unload everything. And basically in that conversation comes the truth behind uh, the death of his children. And Lester believes the mythical figure of the boogeyman came out of the closet, murdered his children. And then we kind of go from there. It's so, so dark. (laughs) And I love it. Why did you choose the boogeyman? What drew you to that story of all the projects on the table? Well, just uh, as a horror film fan and filmmaker, it's kind of the ultimate entity next to the devil. (laughs) (laughs) A billion movies about the devil, but hardly any about the boogeyman. And just reading the story, the thing I took away from it the most is uh, it's so grounded. I was comparing the story a lot to The Exorcist in the sense that The Exorcist is extremely grounded, very intimate with its characters and very fleshed out and just set within very few locations and just very closed off and just intimate. And it feels more believable. This could actually happen, you know, kind of like it's Mm -hmm. not. We know it's bullshit, but, (laughs) you know, it's just but it's just kind of like, wow, if it did happen, it would probably be like this. Yeah. And that's kind of what I liked about the Boogeyman is like, like, obviously, the Boogeyman is bullshit. It's not real. But if it could happen. This may be one of the many accounts, you know. Yeah. I really liked the 
the stylistic choice you made, the whole movie had a kind of claustrophobic feel to it. You managed to really rack up the intensity by keeping things so tight. And so I feel like you did a great job of carrying that tension all the way through. Oh, thank you so much. Now, the Boogeyman deals with, like I said, some horrific material and Mm. the very sensitive subject of child death. What was Mm. your approach to developing the tone for this? At the time, I wasn't a father, but I just, um, I couldn't imagine anything happening to my son, but I just tried to imagine the horrificness of it. And that was kind of the, where we're kind of going with it. The character Lester in the story is, is such a piece of shit. Like, he's not redeemable <laughs> at all. He's like a really fucking awful human being. And in the film, I tried to somewhat make him somewhat redeemable to an extent. Mm-hmm. Because you both read the story, right? Yeah. Okay, so you know he practically lets bo- the boogeyman kill his, wa- I, uh, Andy, his last son? I, I wasn't sure if I was supposed to read it that way, but it real- <laughs> I'm really glad you said that, because I thought that. Because basically he opens the bedroom door, sees the boogeyman shaking his son, and he's like, oh, closes the door. Like, what a fucking asshole. <laughs> it's just basically, like, I tried to come at it from somebody who it was almost like he wasn't phased. Rita, his wife, is definitely mm-hmm. devastated. But it's almost like Lester didn't want to have these kids. It's like, you know, he couldn't afford condoms, so he kept fucking his wife and he kept on having kids. <laughs> and he just hates them. Like, he just like, hey, I'm so, like, if you read no, the story, yeah. you know how much shit he talked about Rita and about the kids. And, like, how his third one was an accident. Like, Andy was an accident. Mm-hmm. He's like, I don't want anything to do with him. But then he, like, warmed up to Andy for some reason. Like, the other two kids, like, oh, the who? The guy? <laughs> I guess. He compares his daughter's corpse. He drops the N-word in the story. Yeah. And it's like, what a piece of shit. Like, he's just fucking horrible. He's the boogeyman. So, <laughs> yeah, right? And I was like, he was the real boogeyman. Anyway, I've totally gotten off track. I'm sorry. But um, yeah, ultimately just about approaching it, it was just kind of, I thought showing the kids' bodies what would be in poor taste. Mm-hmm. We could have easily done that. I didn't want to do that. Um, I just thought it's more impactful of what you don't see, but just them reacting to it and mm-hmm. describing what it looked like when they were found, when the kids were found. So I definitely wanted to be devastating, but disturbing at the same time, because it's like the worst thing is just the harm of a child or an animal. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the angle I wanted to play it off of versus actually seeing it or being gratuitous and showing violence or a, or a kid laying there. First of all, getting a three-year-old to lay there and not move with his <laughs> eyes closed is fucking hard. So even, I, it was never in the plan to try to do that. I just wanted to go off reaction yeah. and description because the story is all about is is just two of them in a room talking it just he's just describing in detail everything the actress Mm -hmm. that played his wife Mm -hmm. the heartbreak in that scream when she walks Mm -hmm. in the room is like you're right you didn't need to show (laughs) bodies like she delivered every moment of that Mm -hmm. i also wanted to say i really liked the change you made with the arrest Having mm-hmm. having him be arrested and having that the the way it begins with the the suspicions before he winds up in therapy, I thought that was very very cool. I had to use well, thank you first of all. No, I had to use what he talks about in in the story because we never know how the hell he finds Doctor Harper's office and how the hell he ends up in there. Yeah, mm-hmm. we just we start the story and he's just beginning his session. It's like how that happened. 
you know, like he never met the assistant apparently. And if you notice, some of the facts kind of change in his story too. Mm-hmm. Oh, like because yeah, it's it's like I don't know if it's on purpose or if it's an accident, but there are some of the facts in the book where he talks about when the kids died, and as he's telling the story, the dates change. Interesting, especially with Andy. Like, because he says, like, uh, like at the very beginning, he says Andy died this last summer, and at the end, he's like, Andy died in February. It's like, oh, I kept that because, in some ways, I wanted you to think: is is Lester lying? Yeah, did he really kill his kids? Like, I kind of was slowly kind of pushing you in that direction a little bit. Only people that like, yeah, because it's in the story. I was like, wait, is he lying? Because his facts change. I really liked that because it did bring a level of discomfort to me mm-hmm. as the viewer picking up on that inconsistency you kind of don't know what's going on you can't really trust what you're seeing or hearing yeah and i'm just thinking like when i i mean it was you know going on 10 years ago that i made it i can't believe it's been that long but like at, you know true crime is a pretty popular thing a lot of people are really into it so i kind of thought if this happened today <laughs> it would be all over the media he'd be put on trial and all kinds of stuff i mean yeah because yeah, nothing ever really happened to him it said you know, basically like, oh, you know, he, after Andy's killed, he walks over to a diner and I think he calls the police from there. So I'm like, this is starting in a diner. Mm-hmm. He should have Andy's blood on him and he should be arrested at a diner. I think that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then it kind of jumps into a trial and, you know, like the media covering it. And it feels like, you know, I love cop movies. I love police procedurals. So I'm like, this is the closest way I could get to making one. <laughs> I'm squeeze it in. Because the first thing, if you didn't know what it was, what the movie was, and you start watching like, this is a cop thriller. Yeah. You know, like it, that's how it starts off. And that's what I wanted to, how I wanted it to start. Yeah. Cause I think the true crime aspect is the most intriguing. Mm-hmm. It definitely ramps you know, up the excitement right away. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Thank you. Now you've got, you had some great performances out of your entire cast. The, the chemistry was all there. How hard was mm-hmm. that casting process? Fucking impossible. <laughs> 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 I didn't like, I have, oh, I, you know, we, we, I'm from Los Angeles. We shot this in Los Angeles and cream of the crop, right? Like there's like tons of people there that are great actors mm-hmm. and should be easy to cast. It's was the fucking polar opposite, man. Like it was just <laughs> kind of like, Oh, I had a bunch of friends that were actors and actresses, but no one I knew could really not to say they're not talented because they fucking are, but they just weren't right for this. So we did an open casting call and we offered the role to people and uh, like the lead roles to people. And, they would they were like accept and then drop out oh and then we're like a few days away from our table read which is then a few days before we start shooting and our two leads dropped out holy shit so it's like great so then we had to call in favors and you know the two of the producers uh kelly and john who are still friends uh, of mine they they knew uh both the person that played uh, jason lockhart who played lester and they knew uh miriam corn who played uh rita and Gregory Gast, who played Dr. Harper, because Dr. Harper was going to be played by Peter Jason. Peter Jason is a is a John Carpenter alumni. He's been in every mm. John Carpenter movie since oh. um, Prince of Darkness. Nice. He's like in every like he's in Karate Kid. He's like the soccer coach that kicks Ralph Macchio off the field. <laughs> and Arach- Arachnophobia. He's the football coach, and he's taking a dump while his daughter gets a spider attacker in the shower. <laughs> Like he's in he's uh in Mortal Kombat, he's the guy that tells Johnny Cage about the tournament, Mortal Kombat tournament. Like he's in all That's these fucking crazy. movies. Yeah, and and uh, I met him when I was in high school. He came to talk to our drama class and I kept in touch with him over the years. I'm like, hey, I'm gonna make the Stephen King movie, you wanna be in it? He's like, sure. Last minute he had um 
cancel due to a uh, filming a project or something. Oh. So he had, he had to drop out. So, and Gregory Goss was a friend of our, John, our producer, and he came in last minute, like the day of the table read. That's wild. He came in. Yeah. So all the casting was last minute and I was shitting bricks. You, you can't tell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we did the table read and it's like the first time really reading the script out loud. It's like, oh my God, this might not go well. What do I do? <laughs> like not that they were bad during the table read. It's just like, I didn't know them. I wasn't sure. Yeah. I didn't audition them. Mm-hmm. I didn't audition any of them. They're just here. I'm like, yeah. Fuck. And it worked out. Was there a moment on set? Like after a take that you were like, fucking got it like that you were excited with their their chemistry and what they were bringing to the table and you knew it'd be okay from here oh yeah there were a lot of them i can't put my finger on one specifically but it was just kind of like the first two days were just solid just uh the the stuff with greg and, and jason dr harper and lester in the room in the, in the office talking and just getting their coverage back and forth so that was the first two days of shooting and i mean it was just right on like it just felt so legit and they were just delivering that dialogue, spitfire. And I had to give them, I didn't give them very many notes. I would just say maybe, you know, like have a little quicker here, maybe put a pause mm-hmm. between there, but I didn't really have to direct them a whole lot. The thing I, the one thing I told Greg was, you know, like you have to remember you're the boogeyman and you made all this shit happen. So there are moments in time where Lester's Tony is some really painful moments. I want you to try to hold in a smile. Don't make it obvious. Mm-hmm. Kind of mm-hmm. start cracking the sides of your mouth just to tad and there are those shots are in the movie where he's talking about the kids dying and you see dr harper going (laughs) i have to go back and watch it again it's so subtle i don't know if i saw that but i felt it on some (laughs) yeah subconscious level yeah he did great Yeah, because it's like because you know because if you know the ending it's like because if you don't know the ending obviously you're not going to think about it but if you know the ending it makes sense it's like he made all this happen he's just hearing it and and Greg asked me, he was like, why would a, why would he be a psychologist? I'm like, you're tapping into fear, man. All psychology is about fear. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're examining. This is, you know, you're Batman. This is your Bruce Wayne. <laughs> and Boogeyman is your Batman, you know? So he's like, okay. And that was kind of my direction to him. And then I would tell him, like, you know, just crack a smile slightly, very slightly. Don't make it obvious. Just like mm-hmm. you're trying to contain a smile. So it's very subtle. And there are shots of that in there. Yeah. I'm going to I'm gonna and, have to go back and peep it. <laughs> yeah it was the the things that probably made me the most excited didn't have dialogue yeah it was just kind of trailer moments mm-hmm. like those subtle turns of the head and stuff like that that's what really got me excited that kind of stuff because i love directing blocking more than dialogue because something about building suspense with no dialogue is is really cool and that's really what i'm into there's not enough of that i feel a lot of people get hung up on yeah. on making the dialogue the the centerpiece mm-hmm. but you can tell so much in a story with no dialogue Oh, absolutely. I like those scenes where you tell them nothing, but you give them everything. Mm-hmm. And, and there, I mean, there was some of that in Boogeyman. Not, there's not a lot. I mean, it's, it's an extreme. I mean, all the story is, is dialogue. Yeah. It's nothing but dialogue. So this is a pretty dialogue heavy short, but the parts that don't have dialogue, I really tried to press the um, suspense and tension button on like, you know, the opening with the cops. You know, when they go into the house and do a search, I mean, I, they're telling you nothing, but you're seeing everything. Yeah, You're seeing the house in disarray. You're seeing blood on the wall. You're seeing all kinds of crazy shit. So it's like something happened here. And I just like like that uncertainty of something pretty awful happened here. And cops, I'm sure, walk on the murder scenes all the time. So they don't know what they're walking into. And mm-hmm. the audience doesn't know what they're walking into. And that was kind of the joy of doing that kind of scene. 
Is that something you like to do in a lot of your projects? Because you have you have a real knack for it. I try to. I think I'm a pretty visual filmmaker. Um, I also like my audience to learn things when the characters do. Yeah. Because I mean, there you know there is that trope of suspense, and, and, it, and it's it's true. It's a good effect of suspense is audience knows, but the mm-hmm. characters don't. And that's great. I mean, it does work. But me personally, I like to have my characters discover as the audience discovers because that puts you on a journey with the audience. You know, that's kind of why I like going that route. All right, so you, uh, we've, we've talked about this a little bit earlier, but working with mm-hmm. child actors, not always the most pleasant or easiest thing to do, but mm-hmm. you had a very young child delivering a very important performance in this film. What sort of challenges did that present when you were filming it? Well, we had two kids in the movie, and it actually wasn't that bad. I mean, there's that, oh, God, don't ever work with the kids. It takes forever. You know, don't <laughs> fucking ruin your day. Yeah. No, it didn't happen because I guess, you know, we, we planned for it. We planned for it to take a certain amount of time, mm-hmm. and we gave us extra cushion just in case things ran long and they didn't want to cooperate. So it was actually pretty easy. A lot of it was just letting the camera roll and just seeing what they do. We try to, you know, line feed them and then he'd say things. The first kid that dies, he goes, fuck we just kept sounding saying boogeyman. He goes, boogeyman, boogeyman. Like, <laughs> like whisper, whisper, go boogeyman. He goes, boogeyman. <laughs> and we're like, yes, that's it. You know, so there's a lot of line feeding and just letting the camera roll and see what happens. Mm-hmm. Same thing with getting uh, the kid that played Andy to cry, which uh, we could thank his parents for that one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're like, oh, they're like, oh, he's really scared of Dora the Explorer. I'm like, what? oh, that's interesting. And someone, <laughs> and someone says, Someone says, oh, I, I'm Dora the Explorer for like kids' parties. I have the mask in my trunk. Like, no. I'm like, yeah. No so, like, way. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I'm like, I don't know. Can we do it? And dad's like, yeah, go ahead. Oh, like, <laughs> That's amazing. You want us to fuck up your child? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so those tears are legit. That kid's not acting. He's So what you don't see is behind the camera, there is someone wearing a Dora the Explorer mask going, oh, my like, God. Yeah, waving their hand. And, the, and that's why. And that take you see him go he's, he's looking around because he's looking at his dad and he goes <laughs> and he starts like freaking out like jason i told jason play less i'm like go, go hug him go comfort him and that's how the scene ends but that's that's how that happened and i felt pretty awful about it at the same time i was like hey that's gold Are what you- a level of serendipity that <laughs> yeah i was like i was like first of all what the hell do you have doing with the door explorer mask right. <laughs> fucking creepy that has to be the craziest set story you have highlight really (laughs) i guess in retrospect there were so many cooler things we did but i was super ecstatic about this shot of the close-up on the doorknob after lester comes out of the bedroom looking to see the carnage of the house and the house is all messed up and everything and there's a part where there's like this green slime ooze that just drips off a doorknob I was so fucking ecstatic about that shot. When we got it in the first take, I was just so <laughs> thrilled and jazzed and telling everyone how great that was. And like, don't slime. <laughs> I'm just like, it is to me. <laughs> no. This is beautiful. Yeah. No, I was just all about that moment. I just, I don't know. It felt so cinematic as shitty and weird and dumb as that <laughs> little slime driven from that doorknob was the way it lit it looked so fucking legit it's like i am making a motion picture i'm not making a short film i'm making a picture i'm making cinema you know as a director 
taking kind of that experience and extrapolating from it, are you, mm. as a director, somebody who, uh, on the range of storyboard everything how I want it to, uh, this looks cool on the day, where do you kind of fall in that spectrum? I storyboard everything. Yeah. Every single shot is storyboarded with wiggle room to improvise. Because sometimes things come up. I mean, that's the number one role of film filmmaking really is just you got to think on your toes. You got to be ready. You gotta, it's smart to have plan B and C. We also got to have C through J because yeah. <laughs> no, it's so fucking true. Like I've, I've been on so many shoots of my own films and other people's films where you plan for everything, but this, and then you got to deal mm-hmm. with it and you either get through it or you don't. So yeah. I storyboard everything. I like to location scout just so I know exactly what I'm doing. Cause you know, it happens on plenty of amateur films where you just show up and like, all right, this looks good. We'll shoot that <laughs> and you know, you're making it up on the fly and you're not going to get all your coverage that way. Yeah. So I don't know. I know some people like to just kind of like freestyle it and they're like, I'm just going to show up and we'll just see what happens. We'll let the actors guide us where we're going to film because I'm so visual. I like to storyboard in advance mm-hmm. and I, I, you know, get it all going. But Sometimes a DP might have a suggestion, something I didn't think of. I'm like, oh, that's really good. Let's do that. Mm-hmm. It's not about ego. If someone has a better idea than mine, we're going to fucking do it. You know, because mm-hmm. that's a director is not supposed to have all the answers. You're just supposed to know, you know, take the best answers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're directing you know, all yours. the people you brought to the table who have that talent you're looking for. Yeah, you're team leader. You know, mm-hmm. your team, your team, your team leader. So it's not supposed to just, yes, you're supposed to be the leader, but. If someone has a good suggestion, you're foolish not to take it. Right. You know, so that's kind of how I look at it. So what has the response been from people who have seen it, whether it's people who've talked to you from seeing it at screenings or your casting crew when they saw it or family or anyone, what has their response been? It's been positive. Ultimately, it's been like, you know, it's creepy. It's uh, the acting has been the, probably the highest mark and the makeup effects are among some of like the, the highest complimented things. Miriam Korn, who plays Rita, has gotten tons of praise for her performance, especially in Finding Denny's Body. And the Boogeyman reveal scene has also gotten so much praise as well. Those are probably the two most praised things that people talk about. They're like, oh, those are their favorite things is the reveal and the acting. But yeah, ultimately, it's been positive. You know, I'm sure there's somebody out there that thinks it's a piece of shit. But. <laughs> that's that's so nice to hear what people, what stood out to people, especially since you shared that kind of horror story about the casting issues that you ran into. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I was terrified, but it worked out. I mean, I don't regret anything, mm. you know, everything, everyone we wanted uh, for the, all the other smaller parts worked out great. There are things maybe now looking back, I probably would have done differently. I probably wouldn't have stuck so close with the, the dialogue from the story. Mm-hmm. You know, I probably would have tweaked some more things. I guess I was afraid to stray too far away, but in retrospect, I did because I made it like a true crime story versus yeah. a straight up like mm-hmm. traumatic drama with some horror in it. That's that fine line with adaptations and fans. You never yeah. know what they're yeah. going to lose their mind about. I think I'm I'm respectful enough. I mean, maybe you can answer this question better than I can, but I think I respected the material enough, but also made it my own. Yes, yeah. absolutely. You. I think, yeah. Yes. <laughs> you, I, I felt like, well, like I said, with that, with that, the cop opening, that one of the things that stood out to me with the story is that it didn't feel like he had, there were any consequences to all of that. Mm. And the way you launched that beginning made it feel like there were real life consequences. Mm-hmm. Even though he was, you know, found not guilty, there were still, there were stakes there. 
And, oh yeah, there yeah. was doubt too. Yeah, you know, like there's no evidence that he did it, but it doesn't look good. <laughs> but it's sure not <laughs> like, great. Who, like who has three infant children that die in a mysterious circumstance? Yeah. It just sounds fishy as mm-hmm. fuck, you know. <laughs> so yeah, it's just like there's something wrong in that house. Looking back on doing this Dollar Baby, if you could give any piece of advice to future Dollar Baby filmmakers, what would that piece of advice be? Basically just what we talked about, which is, you know, stay true to the heart of the story and make it your own. Put your spin on it. You know, like it, it's you're, you're you're given an honor to, to use King's work, but you're also making your movie mm-hmm. with King's words. Yeah. Don't be afraid to be yourself and put your heart into it. Even if that heart is killing children. <laughs> or scaring them with giant Dora heads. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I wish you had a, besi- a behind-the-scenes photo of that. <laughs> oh, dude, I wish we had behind-the-scenes in this thing. I mean, there's some pictures and stuff, but there's yeah. there's no picture of the Dora mask or anything. I wish we had someone roll and film that, mm-hmm. like filming us behind the scenes, because there's, there's a lot of fun stuff. That The makeup process and all that was just awesome. <laughs> So, Mondo, before we wrap things up, I I just want to ask for our viewers, Mm -hmm. what are you interested in? What are you working on right now? What's happening in Mondo's world? Uh, Well, Mondo has been in Mondo world for a long, long time. (laughs) Um, So I have a feature I'm trying to get off the ground. So as of right now, I'm just looking into maybe getting some financing going uh, so we can get a little bit of a budget. Not a huge budget, very small, small Mm-hmm. modest budget so we can afford little caesar's pizza um <laughs> but uh yeah so it's a horror movie yay <laughs> but uh it's basically about a haunted mode that's all i can really say Ooh. Um, all so, right yeah it's, it's very character driven supernatural movie very claustrophobic which is kind of my jam if you can't tell yeah <laughs> <laughs> and um yeah and i got some shorts playing festivals right now nice x massacre which is a christmas slasher with the killer santa claus Ooh. nice and I have uh, another one called Death Scene, which is basically about a possessed television. <laughs> that, sounds that sounds awesome. Yeah. <laughs> you know, basically the goal for that one is to make you never want to fall asleep in front of the TV. Ooh. All right. Which well, you most have of the my population does. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> that is a great thing to terrify people of. Yeah, I I know plenty of people who do that. I grew up for some reason. I don't know where this phobia came from. I don't think anyone scared me with it as a story, but I grew up scared to fall asleep in front of the TV because I, I always wondered what the characters did when I was asleep. That's horrifying. That's so <laughs> gnarly. I love that. So spread that in your breakfast burrito. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of the, what the story is for um, death scene, the, the short I got going on, but uh, we're doing the festival scene. So it's not online yet, but I'll hook you guys up with the link. If you guys want to oh, yeah, that'd be awesome. would love Thank to. You. And so if our listeners want to follow you on your filmmaking journey, where, where can they follow you online? I'm on the corner of uh, <laughs> you and leave me alone. Uh, no, <laughs> no uh, you can find me on Instagram easily. Uh, my name is uh, Mondo Franco or Mondo Bizarro, depending. But my actual screen name is uh, at L underscore Mandalorian. <laughs> nice. So yeah, you can find me there with a very with a very strange half picture of half my face. <laughs> I'm on Twitter as Evil Panda Films. And then, yeah, you can find me on Facebook at, uh, at Mondo Franco or uh, Evil Panda Films, my production company. Fantastic. Awesome. Mondo, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. It has been such a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. That's it for this episode of Dairy Public Radio. As always, thank you for listening. Join us for our next episode. For CM Alexander and Mondo Franco, this is Joshua Khan reminding you, stay true to the heart of the story. Thank you.
Hey everyone, CM Alexander here. Thank you for listening to our interview with Mondo Franco, the Dollar Baby director of The Boogeyman. Please follow Mondo and keep up with his awesome work on Instagram at Mondo Franco or Mondo Bizarro or L underscore Mondalorian. You can also find him at Twitter at Evil Panda Films and Facebook at Mondo Franco or Evil Panda Films. Here's the haiku for The Boogeyman. Tell me all your woes. The Boogeyman calls to you. No children are safe. That's all for now, listeners. Goodbye.